Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Nicholas Jufus and today I'm coming to you from Michigan with our guest expert, Professor Michael Seidman, Director of the Division of Otologic and Neurootologic Surgery at the Henry Ford Health System in Bloomfield, Michigan. He's also Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine and Professor at Wayne State University. He's the past Chair of the Board of Governors and on the Board of Directors for the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. He has recently co-authored an article on tinnitus in the Journal of Current Opinion in Otolaryngology and today is speaking to us about tinnitus, specifically non-pulsatile tinnitus, something that is commonly seen in otolaryngologic practice. Professor Seidman, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here today. So we'll start off with an overview question. What is tinnitus? Tinnitus is uh, pronounced also tinnitus. Uh, Webster's Dictionary says tinnitus is a correct pronunciation, but we all in the Midwest seem to say tinnitus. That being said, it is a sound coming from the ear or the head, perceived to be coming from the ear or the head, without an external sound source. Okay, and how common is it? Uh, it's extremely common. So in America, probably about 50 million Americans have it, and worldwide it's been estimated to be about uh, um, 600 million people that have uh, complained of tinnitus. And so I guess, you know, 50 million Americans, you're looking at sort of one-fifth to one-sixth of the population in, the, sure. in that context. Um, what are the risk factors for developing non-pulsatile tinnitus, and is there anything that can be done to prevent it? Uh, those are great questions, and uh, most people will say if you have a high-frequency hearing loss, uh, which can obviously come from age, uh, from noise exposure, and from uh, drugs that affect the inner ear, probably the top three. Um, so obviously aging can't be avoided, uh, and noise in certain, certain circumstances can also not be easily avoided. And if you're in the hospital with a severe bone infection, some drugs that may be damaging, such as the aminoglycosides, may or may not be able to be easily avoided. So the, the answer is most of the things that we think are associated with uh, ringing, such as hearing loss, are sequelae of things that are going to happen to, to most everybody uh, on this planet, God willing. So... You know, there are also people who have tinnitus that have no hearing loss, and uh, part of that is where we measure. We tend to measure from 500, 250 hertz up to about 8,000 hertz, but the human ear can, of course, hear up to 20,000 hertz, and we tend not to measure that. And it's funny because this is a separate segue, and it was part of my trilogic thesis published back in 2000, is that I will argue that age-related hearing loss happens the moment you're born, as each day uh, transpires, you're a day older, a year older, and so on. And, you know, a 10 or a 12-year-old can easily hear up into the 18,000, 20,000 hertz, but a 20-year-old is already starting to drop off. So I will argue that presbycusis starts the moment that you're born, theoretically, and continues uh, if you live to be 100 or 110 years of age, you're going to more than likely have presbycusis, though there are some people that don't. Right, that's very interesting. Um, so when a patient presents to you uh, for management of their tinnitus, what do you want to know from them on history? And can you just describe to us what your routine physical examination would be? Yeah, I, I mean, so, the, so the, the, the main things I want to know are the things that we've already talked about. Uh, so I'm looking at their age, I'm looking at their uh, work uh, environment, I'm looking at their um, hobbies, or are they hunters, do they shoot guns? Um, have they been in multiple uh, car accidents where airbags deploy and airbags deploy at, you know, close to 170 dB? Were they in the military? So I want to know about noise exposure. I want to know about drug exposure and, 
Uh, I also want to know about family history. So did mom and dad have a, you know, an early onset of hearing loss and or tinnitus? And, and so those are the kind of key questions that uh, I would ask. And then, of course, are they on any specific medications that could theoretically be attributed to it? Some of the obvious ones are high dose of the NSAIDs, in particular uh, aspirin, for example, and high doses, of course, can cause tinnitus. And there's a lot of other drugs. If you look in the PDR, there's probably north of 8,000 different drugs that can be associated with tinnitus. And the problem is, is that many of us see patients who are on 50, 15 or 20 different medications, and, and perhaps half of them can cause tinnitus, uh, and uh, you can't stop them. So then the, the question is, is what's better or worse, treating the, the disease that they have or living with uh, tinnitus, for sure. So moving to the exam, it's a standard uh, otolaryngologic head and neck examination. So I'm uh, looking at the ears, the nose, and mouth, and the throat. I'm feeling the jaw joint, uh, half of people with uh, TMJ will have tinnitus, and uh, um, they may or may not have clicking or popping of the jaw joint. And some people, and I don't tend to do this, but some people will put the finger in the mouth and, and feel the uh, uh, internal pterygoids and push on there, and everybody's a bit sensitive. It's almost like a pressure point. Uh, but if somebody has severe TMJ, that can also be a cause. And then there's some suggestion that certain neuromuscular uh, issues, such as cervical spine problems and things of that nature, may cause uh, some forms of uh, tinnitus in, in some people. And a lot of this is not uh, something that we were taught in medical school, some of the neuromuscular connections. And, and we do know that some patients who have had a vestibular schwannoma removed, if they look left or right or blink, they can get tinnitus. And those are some forms of um, weird uh, feedback loops that uh, cause you to have tinnitus. So there's a lot of different things that uh, can be at play here. Sure. Um, do you routinely use any uh, surveys such as the tinnitus handicap inventory or a visual analog scale to assess and track tinnitus over time? How useful do you find those? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, they're fairly time-consuming. And, you know, it's the overwhelming majority of patients who show up at a um, laryngologist's office will say, oh, and by the way, I have tinnitus, but it's not affecting my lifestyle. So, you know, people notice that they have it, but they don't let it bother them. Um, if you have somebody who's severely affected by their tinnitus, I think it is reasonable and prudent to uh, have them work with an audiologist in, in our case. And we do things such as the THI. Um, uh, we'll sometimes, uh, you know, also administer the Beck depression indices, the um, uh, THQs, there's a whole bunch of different surveys out there that have been validated, and, and we ha have used all of them at one point in time. Okay, and what investigations do you routinely order in your assessment of tinnitus? And I guess specifically I'm interested in if someone presents with um, unilateral non-pulsatile tinnitus, would you routinely order an MRI? Yes. Okay, and, and so, any other investigations yeah. just in, in say, Yeah, so, so um, audiometric studies are, are obviously critical, and uh, if you see a typical bilateral high-frequency sensorial hearing loss, we typically say that uh, their tinnitus is attributable to that. Um, you know, we don't routinely um, do pitch and tone matching for our patients unless we're doing an experimental study, and, and you know, we, we have... Um, we, we developed in collaboration with Dirk de Ritter, who was in Belgium and now is in New Zealand. Um, I started uh, implanting patients' auditory cortexes with uh, uh, electrodes into their brain with an, an implanted pulse generator in their chest to drive electrical current. And in those patients, for example, on that study, and we've implanted six patients to date or seven patients, um, we, we follow all of those things and we do all of those additional tests. We're also one of uh, four sites in the, in the country doing the vagal nerve stimulator 
uh, study. And for those patients, we also did the THI and THQs and neck depression indices and uh, um, audiometric studies and pitch and tone matching. And then uh, getting back to your specific question, if they do have an asymmetric hearing loss or an asymmetric uh, tinnitus saying they only have it in one ear, I think it is reasonable and prudent to do an MRI. Now, some places will say, well, why not do an auditory brainstem response first and see if that's abnormal, then do an MRI because the ABR is less expensive. Uh, but, you know, the ABR, if, you, if you're at about 2,000 hertz and you have greater than 60 dB of hearing loss, it's not terribly reliable. And then, you know, the studies out of the House Hearing Institute have clearly shown that you can get about a 23% false uh, negative rate, meaning the ABR would be normal so they could still have a tumor. Sure. Um, are there any lifestyle choices uh, or changes that can be implemented that might ameliorate tinnitus for someone that's already suffering from it? Yeah, so I'm, you know, this is very arguable, but um, I do know, and, and you can, you know, certainly correlate that with your Meniere's patients. Uh, the first in her diet says, you know, salt uh, avoidance and a diuretic, and, you know, then people added, you know, the, the mnemonic cats, so caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and simple sugars and, and salt. And, and uh, so I am a believer that, you know, what I tell patients is that the most invasive least intrusive management for the tinnitus is to modify your diet and see if that has any effect. So I've had patients who literally drink two pots of coffee, you know, 24 cups of coffee a day. Um, I get them to quit. Uh, six weeks later, they call me back and say, Seidman, I'm not happy with you. I went through six weeks of withdrawal and I still have my ringing. And I have other patients who drink literally a half a cup of coffee a day. And they say, Doc, this really can't be affecting my tinnitus, can, can it? And I say, I don't know, stop it and see. And six weeks later, they call me back, and on my visual analog scale of 1 to 10, 10 being extremely severe, and 1 being it doesn't bother you at all, if they were a 5 or a 6, and they went down to a 3, and the only thing they changed was their elimination of a half a cup of coffee, well, we've helped those people. So I do say caffeine, alcohol, simple sugars, salt, tobacco products, um, things of that nature that uh, uh, should be avoided. But you could also think about MSG and aspartame and NutraSweet and food colorings and food dyes. And so if you really get down to the brass tacks here, you can make an argument for people to, you know, go off of everything, obviously not uh, very practical, um, and see how they do. So if they were only drinking water for six weeks, it's not very compatible. So it's, it's very difficult and challenging to get people to do that. So I say it's the most invasive um, I'm sorry, uh, most intrusive, least invasive is to look at some of the dietary modification factors and see if it has any effect. And some people it does, and other people it doesn't. But that's what I typically start with. And while we're on, uh, I guess, lifestyle choices um, or lifestyle in general, um, do you feel that something like you know common stresses and, and anxiety from that plays a role in tinnitus? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt that people who have, you know, and I have ringing just in my left ear. I have a negative MRI. Thank you for the concern for anybody who's listening. Um, and, uh, you know, mine comes and goes. And and, and I, I was trying to figure out if there's any real rhyme or reason, but if I'm writing six papers, working on three grants and have some deadlines, it seems like my tinnitus is louder. Or if I'm talking to a patient about it, you start to focus it. And, you know, that, that's another fascinating thing that people don't realize is there's a really nice study out of uh, the Oregon Health Sciences uh, University years ago that, uh, you know, did pitch and tone matching and loudness matching. And they said that the average, the, the, the person's tinnitus, if they could actually pitch match, it ranges somewhere between 3 and 15 decibels of loudness. 
and that the average tinnitus was about seven decibels of loudness. Now, if you think about that, and you think about a soft whisper being 20 decibels, and the average person's tinnitus is about seven decibels, how can something that's half of a soft whisper drive you nuts? And for, for me and my left ear, I happen to have it right now. It's a really high-pitched sound, and it's pretty annoying, and it gets more annoying as I talk to you about it uh, because we're talking about the subject. But my best analogy is if you took a baby birthday candle, something not terribly bright, you went into a small bathroom that had no windows, you closed the door, it's pitch black, and you lit that baby birthday candle in there, that's the brightest thing in the room. And then if you turn on the background lights, if you turn on the lights inside there, you'd barely notice that baby birthday candle. And so part of that is the, the, the logic of masking, which we haven't discussed yet, but that's the logic of raising the ambient sound, in this case, raising the ambient light so you don't notice that so much. And that is a valid form of treatment and something that I explain to my patients when they say, well, doc, this is so loud. And, and I will tell you that it's very loud in my ear. I have not actually done the loudness matching in my left ear, but it sounds like it's about 80, 90 dB. That's what it sounds like to me right now, which is pretty annoying. Um, but I would bet that it's probably somewhere between 3 and 15 dB, and it's just so high-pitched that, you know, that you're, you're kind of paying attention to it. Mm, that, that's a very nice analogy. I, I do like that. Um, what is um, the current evidence that you're aware of for nutritional supplements in tinnitus, and do you routinely screen for any nutritional deficiencies in your management of patients? Yeah, so that's a fascinating question. So one-third of the people, so what you may not know about me is my undergraduate degree was in human nutrition from the School of Public Health uh, at University of Michigan, where I also went on to medical school there. And so I'm considered an expert on nutritional deficiencies and uh, health and wellness from that standpoint. And you, you mentioned that I run Center for Integrative Medicine and Wellness for Henry Ford Health System. And, and um what we know, and it's a fact, and this is based upon some of my work with the CDC, is that one out of three people on this planet, not just sub-Saharan Africa where people are starving and there are people starving here in America as well, but one out of three people on this planet have a micronutrient deficiency, and we just don't test for it. And people tend to do, quote, just fine, unquote. Uh, and part of it is, is a problem of the rating factor. I mean, now everybody is vitamin D deficient, right, because they just raised the bar two feet higher. Um, so now, you know, you're, you're, you're told to be above 20 deciliters per, you know, with whatever the, the particular measurement is in your lab. And it used to be 10. Now it's 20. So they just doubled the floor of where you're supposed to be. But the most common micronutrient deficiencies besides vitamin D are some of the B vitamins. Um, and, uh, you know, um, replacing those is not unreasonable. But people think you start taking a multiple vitamin or you start taking, um, you know, B vitamins that you're replenished after your first or your second dose. It can take up to about six months to replenish a nutritional deficiency. Um, so, yes, I am, I am a strong advocate of that. And, and, and I, I, uh, I don't have anything to do with Arch's tinnitus relief formula except that I know the people and I helped them develop their product years ago. Um, and I used to be paid a royalty. I no longer do because... Uh, People thought that I was selling supplements, but, you know, part of my NIH-funded research and my trilogical thesis was looking at aging and supplements and things of that nature, and that's what I lecture on around the world, and we've had lots of grants, still have grants, and looking at those kinds of things, but so I have no disclosure there other than I, I do have a nutritional supplement company business that I've run since 1997, and I've made supplements for myself and my friends and family and professional athletes around, around the globe for years. Um, so, so I do have a conflict of interest there that I wanted to disclose with uh, our body language vitamin company. Um, that being said, I do think that everybody should be on supplements. And even if you have a healthy diet, 
uh, you still, one out of three people have a micronutrient deficiency. And there's a lot of studies to show that extra X, Y, or Z can reduce your risks of A, B, or C. Um, and, you know, I teach a course at the Academy, uh, Complementary Integrated Medicine, and I also teach other course, uh, Options for Enhancing Health and Wellness. And I show the data behind a lot of the reasons uh, for supplementation. And, and it's to me, it's very compelling. Um, also very controversial, no doubt. So, yes, I, I do recommend that people uh, try supplements. I usually say a good multiple vitamin. Um, I usually say uh, an extra B complex. And I do tell people um, <clears throat> that I, I highly recommend the Arches Tinnitus Relief Formula Combination Pack, which has got ginkgo, garlic, and zinc. And then it also has, um, they have a stress B formula and a B12 formula. So they have a special combination pack that costs about $150 um, for three months. So it's about $50 a month. And I tell people to try for three to four months, but you could easily argue try it for five to six months before giving up on it. And I tell people if it works and helps you, fantastic. If it doesn't, then I apologize and say stop sending them their money. But I think that's a reasonable thing for people to try as well. Sure. And I guess as sort of a, a single supplement that's had the most attention in tinnitus, would you say ginkgo biloba and its extracts have probably had the most focus uh, in the literature? I think that that's probably true. I mean, there are others that, that we use, and, and then depending upon, you know, my, my line in the sand, you know, I do talk about uh, nutritional strategies and dietary modification. I do talk about specific supplements and herbs. I do mention arches. And, and then I say, you know, does this affect your activities of daily living? Do you say to your wife or to your husband, I'm sorry, honey, I can't go to the movie. I'm not going to the, I'm not going to the party because my ringing is so loud. Um, or does it interfere with your sleep? So if it affects your activities of daily living or interferes with your sleep, that's when I switch to um, centrally acting medications such as Xanax or Baclofen and Clonopin in combination and, and others. But, you know, of course, before that, I still tell people you might want to try masking. You might want to try tinnitus retraining therapy. You might want to try some of these other things. But most patients don't want to do that because they say it costs, you know, two to $5,000. It takes two years for it to, to really click on and be helpful. Um, but, you know, uh, recently my brother-in-law, who had classic labyrinthitis, you know, had balance issues and hearing loss, had terrible ringing. And he, um, you know, I said, you can try a hearing aid. And he, said, he, he put the hearing aid in and he said, my ringing is gone. You know, so it, we, we know that masking strategies, be it a hearing aid or a formal tinnitus masking device, can help 70% of patients. But most patients don't want to spend that money. Yeah, well, that was uh, going to be my next question, actually, on um, uh, sort of sound enrichment devices and, and masking treatments. What what did you think about those? So I guess you've you've kind of you've answered that. I have, and you know, I, I think that it makes a lot of sense, and it's uh, um, you know, um, I think it's worthwhile trying. But again, most patients won't uh, you know try them because they cost you know a thousand, two thousand, up to four thousand dollars for a single hearing aid slash masking device. But I certainly think that they're worthwhile if you want to give them a try. Sure. Um, so on to something else. How, how useful do you feel programs such as neuromonics, tinnitus retraining therapy, or cognitive behavioral therapy are for tinnitus? So the, the tinnitus guideline that recently came out basically said uh, um, I, I was very disappointed, and I told them that I was disappointed, and I wrote a 25-page diatribe about why I thought that I 
I had issues with it. But, you know, that was about the only thing that they said had shown uh, with reasonable data that was effective, and that was CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, it's up, and, I, and I'm all for it. I think that's great that people want to try it. But again, people don't want to go to the psychiatrist or the psychologist. Typically, those are the people who do CBT and, and work with them. But it really is important to understand. You know, once you've had your MI, if you have unilateral tinnitus like me and realize you don't have a brain tumor, um, that this is not going to kill you, that this is not life-threatening, but this is annoying. It's no different than low back pain or chronic migraines um, or chronic rhinosinusitis or chronic allergies. It's a chronic condition. And in America and in this world, we are lousy at taking care of chronic conditions, right? We're very good if you have a hot appendix, if you have a hole in your eardrum, we can fix those things. We can take out the appendix, fix the hole in the ear, but we're, we're really bad at low back pain. We're really bad at fibromyalgia. We're really bad at, at tinnitus. And, and these are things that, you know, you don't necessarily have cures for, but, you know, uh, one of my takeaway messages is that is I don't want people walking out of my office not feeling loved, not feeling thoroughly understood and listened to, um, and, and most people will say, learn to live with it, I have it too, get out of my office, because it's not because we're mean as physicians and surgeons, it's because we have, we're so frustrated, we, have, we think we have nothing to help these people with. So if you're not willing to do it, send them to you know, our audiologist or send them to somebody else who is willing to you know, spend that half hour, and sometimes it's an hour with these patients, which frankly, I, I work with two nurse practitioners that help me do all of this stuff, so um, typically the patient who's seeing me... Um, you know, is seeing me for one of my clinical trials, whether it's AM101 or whether it's the vagal nerve stimulator or whether it's the brain implant. You know, you know that's, that's when they're seeing me. I'm not seeing the routine off-the-street tinnitus patient anymore because it can stifle your practice uh, if you're seeing nonstop tinnitus patients for sure. I got a little off track on your question about neuromonics, but I think all of those things are, are, are critical and worthwhile mentioning to your patients and offering to them. But, you know, I, aside from... From those things, we already talked about uh, nutritional and herbal strategies. I mean, people have talked about electrical stimulation and the autosuggestion and hypnosis and biofeedback and relaxation therapies, which goes along with the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, acupuncture may help. Um, I've, I've had people who went to a chiropractor and got their tinnitus, and I've had people who went to a chiropractor who had tinnitus, they adjusted their neck, and the tinnitus went away. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that can be tried and what works for person A may not necessarily work for person B. Yes, definitely. Now, um, Professor Simon, something you touched on earlier was about medical treatments for tinnitus. Um, which medical treatments have you found to be effective or do you know there's uh, evidence in the literature for, uh, I suppose, specifically anxiolytics, benzodiazepines, antidepressants? Um, and, and do you have some sort of a treatment regimen that you usually go I through and, and prescribe? Yeah, so, so, you know, I really, I, it was the Brummett paper, and this is something that surprised me that, you know, for whatever reason, the guideline group did not think that this was uh, a worthwhile contribution, but it was a very good study, in my opinion, um, and it showed that uh, Xanax helps 78% of those patients with tinnitus, and it's funny, my patients will say, okay, is this actually turning down the loudness of my tinnitus, or is it turning down my annoyance, and my answer is a smile, and I go, yes, you know, probably a little bit of both. But Xanax and other anxiolytics oftentimes work on the same GABA receptors that take sound from the ear to the brain. It's the same way that it's mediated through those types of channels. So, um, you know, people have used things like magnesium, um, uh, the cannabinoids, which is, you know, an extract from, uh, from the marijuana plant, um, 
uh, lidocaine has been shown to be some help, corroborating another glutamate uh, antagonist. Um, people have used steroids if it's uh, early on, for example. If somebody has a noise exposure and a blast and they have ringing, maybe with or without hearing loss, we think, quote, you know, inflammation, bioinflammation, perhaps steroids would be of some benefit. So I try all of those things. But I usually don't go to centrally acting medications unless you've crossed my line in the sand, which doesn't significantly affect your activities of daily living, yes or no, and does it inhibit, uh, interfere with your sleep? And if they answer yes to either of those two questions, I say, I can give this to you. And I started at 0.5, you know, I recommend 0.5 milligrams three times a day. Um, so some patients have no problem starting at that. Some patients need to kind of taper up starting at 0.25 and, and so on. Um, and then, you know, I tell them that after about two weeks that the sleepiness effects, you know, or kind of the sluggish effect that you might feel usually goes away. And, you know, most people tolerate it very well and, and love it and, and find that it's turned them down significantly. And people worry about addiction, but I can tell you I've probably got uh, 10,000 patients on Xanax over the years, and I've had one addicted person, and I didn't prescribe that drug for him. Because mm, I know that's um, definitely a, a concern. I mean, I know... Xanax was something which um, used to be on the the commonly prescribed schedule in Australia, uh, and uh, more recently, because of the addictive properties of it that have started to come out, it's moved on to sort of the restricted um, prescription schedule. So, um, yeah, you, but you haven't found that to be a concern in your practice. I have not found it to be an issue at all. So, you know, and I explained to my patients that addiction basically means. I'm taking three, where's my fourth pill? I've had a lot of stress, can I have my fifth pill? Where's my sixth pill, where's my seventh pill? And I just don't see that um, in these patients. And then Elevil is another one, you know, amitriptyline is something that people used to use pretty much at nighttime. Um, and I, I don't start with that. And then I also go to baclofen and clonopin in combination. Um, uh, baclofen is uh, Leorosol and uh, clonopin is clonazepam. And in combination, they can be of help. I find that either alone doesn't seem to be terribly helpful, but in conjunction, it's better. The reason I start with Xanax, it's one drug, it's one pill. I've used it for a long time. It's very simple to prescribe. And again, I don't see the addictive uh, issues, though it is certainly possible. And I warn my patients about that. Okay. And so overall, you kind of move through, uh, moving from uh, alprazolam in the first uh, instance, then going to uh, amitriptyline, and then going to clonopine and baclofen. Is that kind of the the trajectory that you'd follow? Yeah, I think uh, for me, probably the other way around. I, I would start with Xanax if, again, if ADLs are affected or sleep. If that didn't work, I'd do baclofen and clonopin. I've tried things like Neurontin, you know, another gabaergic compound. I've tried asymprosate, uh, which is used for addiction. There was a study out of Brazil that I think never got published but was presented, and, and I found that not to be terribly helpful. Um, I had one patient uh, who... Um, smoked marijuana and said it helped its tinnitus and he wanted me to give him a mar uh, medical marijuana card. And, and I think, uh, you know, I've been practicing medicine for 28 years and I did give him a medical marijuana card, but uh, I'm not sure how he got around it because it's not an official indication to my knowledge. But uh, when he uses marijuana, it helps his tinnitus. Um, so I'm interested in the, the effects of the cannabinoids, which are, you know, people are talking about for the medicinal properties of uh, uh, marijuana and don't have the, I don't know if it's a hallucinogenic effect of THC, but the, that effect. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to study. Sure. Um, something else that often comes up for treating tinnitus is uh, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Sure. Um, what are your views on that? So there, there are multiple studies that have looked at uh, our TMS, and we've looked at it uh, a little bit, and Dirk DeRitter uh, was using it uh, quite a bit as well. Um, 
And the studies, you know, if you look at them fairly carefully, I would have to say that they're fairly mixed. But on on average, um, you'd probably say that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess I'm gonna uh, say that that probably somewhere between forty and fifty percent of patients notice some improvement with uh, TMS. Um, and, and those are the main studies that have suggested that. And, you know, you'll see a study that says it works well. You'll see other studies that says it doesn't work well. But I think it's reasonable. I think it's worth a try. At our hospital, we offer it through our psychiatry department. Um, and, um, you know, they charge close to $300 a pop. And so most patients, again, don't want to, to, to be doing that. Okay. And um, finally, what surgical options do you think exist for patients with uh, intractable tinnitus? And I guess what I'm looking at here is specifically the the sort of use of cochlear implants and how they've serendipitously been found to um, aid hearing, but then also to improve tinnitus in a proportion of patients. Yeah, sure. So before I jump there, because there's one other drug that I'm intrigued with, well, two drugs. One is um, AM101 and AM111, which is the RS medical drugs, and we're one of 72 sites in the world testing AM101 for tinnitus uh, after uh, noise trauma, a slap to the ear, or uh, uh, explosion, or um, infection, acute otitis media with tinnitus. Which, and, 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 you know, we see about a 1,000 patients a year, and they said, how many patients that, you know, fit this bill do you think you'd see in a year? And I told them somewhere around three or four. So, you know, it's not a very easy recruit. Somebody shoots a gun or an airbag deploys and you try the medication. So I think that that's some exciting stuff that's coming down the pike. Um, the other thing that uh, we're studying as well is the vagal nerve stimulator. So we've implanted nine patients with that. Um, and the, the uh, results are encouraging enough that they're looking for additional funding, and I think that they will get it. Um, so the vagal nerve stimulator, to me, is a, a fascinating uh, surgical um, option for sure. Um, and uh, the therapy basically pairs each tone played via a headphone with a burst of vagal nerve stimulation, and it's felt that over time this will alter the neurons um, in the auditory uh, cortex and reduce the perception of, of tinnitus. So one of the first trials that was done was done in Belgium. That was Dirk de Ritter. It was kind of mixed, but some interesting results. And now they did the larger trial for institutions in the United States, and we were one of those arms. And um, it, I think it's very interesting because they're working on the possibility of reorganizing the frequency map disorganization that occurs in tinnitus. Uh, some of this work is done by Engineer and Kilgard have published a, a fair amount on, on this. So I, I think that that's a really interesting uh, way to go. Um, now, the other surgical, you know, so there are patients who have otosclerosis and have tinnitus, and you do their otosclerosis surgery, and they're better. Um, so that's, that's kind of a I'm cheating there by, by that one because it's not directly for the tinnitus. That was for a different type sure. of problem. Yeah. But the, the, uh, the surgical things that we did, we actually used MEG, magnetoencephalographic studies, and we had a grant from Medtronic to look at this, and then we've had some other NIH grants looking at MEG. Um, so it's a, a magnetoencephalographic studies, which basically measure, um, measure um, the magnetic activity of the brain. And we can actually tonotopically map the tinnitus to somebody's brain. So we, we did pitch matching and tone matching, um, and then, you know, uh, once that was done, we actually played that sound back to them in an fMRI scanner um, and in a MEG scanner, and we could find, we could tonotopically pick the spot 
in the auditory cortex where that mapped to. So then uh, the first surgery ever done in the world was done here in 2004 at Henry Ford Health System. And uh, Dirk Deriner, Kostelosevich, and I uh, did that on a patient where we basically did a craniotomy, um, implanted the electrode, ran it into his chest, and then drove electrical current to his brain. And the first patient we ever did came to be from Indi- Indiana, and basically he turns on his device and his ringing goes away. He turns off his device and his ringing comes back. So that was a grand slam home run for us, and I was thrilled. The long story short, which we're, we're going to hopefully present in Chicago, is our data on our six or seven patients now. And what I tell people is that uh, uh, we we cured one patient, we helped three others, and we did nothing for two. Um, and we also have electrodes in the limbic system, so with the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate gyrus, as well as the auditory cortex, I have two patients with uh, multiple electrodes, and we did nothing for those two. So that's kind of my joke, and I know one of your questions earlier was like, what do I use? And I tend to use my own visual analog scale, and I tell patients about the brain surgery I developed, and I say on a scale of 1 to 10, 1, this doesn't bother you at all, 10, you have you know, Michael Seidman's brain surgery that doesn't work very well, where are you? Yep. And they go, oh, I'm a nine, you know, and, but, you know, we see the eights, nines, and tens. So I think that that's a surgery that I really think that targeting the auditory cortex or targeting the limbic system makes an awful lot of sense to me. I just think we're not smart enough to understand the coding strategies of how to drive electrical current to, a, if you will, electrically jam their tinnitus. And I, and I liken this to 40 years ago when, um, you know, Bill House and the people from France first put an electrode into people's cochlea um, and they, you know, plug it into a battery and people heard beep, beep, you know, so, I mean, how, how does that allow you to hear using a cochlear implant? And the answer is it doesn't. It took a lot of really smart uh, bioengineers and people who understood electrical coding to come up with the fact that you could now hear. And this segues nicely into the cochlear implant. Yes. Um, you know, people with single-sided deafness and tinnitus, um, Bruce Gantz has done a lot of the work. Uh, Jay Rubenstein has done some of the work. A lot of people around the country have done some really interesting work with this where you're putting in a shorter electrode or a ball electrode near near the round window, and that helps people. So this got back to a comment I mentioned earlier about electrical stimulation is we know from the Steenerson days that if you put electrical stimulation on the side of the head, um, and, and Volta was one of the first to do this, you know, you know, 100 plus years ago, that you'll improve ringing about 50%. If you put it on the promontory, it's more like 60 to 70%. If you put it into the cochlea, it's about an 80%. People will notice reduction in their tinnitus. Auditory brainstem implants, it's about 70 to 80% as well. So I kept thinking the higher you go up, the, the more likely it is that you're able to uh, modulate it. And we've obviously helped uh, four patients with our brain implants, but we've done nothing for, you know, two of them. So it, it's pretty drastic to go there. Now, if you if you could, uh, you know, do something more simple, like a short electrode array for somebody that didn't interfere with their hearing and help with their tinnitus, I think that would be wonderful. And I think there's definitely a role for that. Excellent. Well, that was a, um, a very thorough roundoff of, uh, of the surgical options. Um, so the final part of the interview is something called the final word. It's a chance for you to either reiterate something important that we've covered in the interview or talk about some important future directions for tinnitus. So uh, for the final word, I'll hand over to you, Professor Seidman. Thank you. So the, the, I guess one thing I didn't mention is, you know, we're, we're one of the uh, uh, Envoy sites, the fully implantable hearing devices and the Maxim site. So, you know, those are like hearing aids as well. And the studies they're, they're early on are showing about half of those people notice improvement to their tinnitus as well. So I just wanted to mention that. But long story short for me is, 
you know, we need to feel badly for our tinnitus patients and we need to try for them. Um, to say that I have it too, or if you don't have it, to say just get out of my office is really not fair. I, I understand we all feel that way on some level, but I would uh, urge you to either hire a PA or a nurse practitioner who can spend time with that patient, hold their hand or their shoulder, and or have an audiologist who is passionate about that to help them. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like the rest of, of you on the listening in is I'm a surgeon and I want to be a busy surgeon. That's what I love to do. Um, so you give me a choice of being in the office all day or being in the operating room all day, I, I choose the latter. Um, but I, my heart goes out to these patients uh, that have tinnitus. I feel very badly for them. And I want them to know that we help and, and you can too. You can help 90% of these patients. You're not going to help 100% of these, but you can help 90% of these patients just doing the things that we just talked about from dietary modification to herbal therapies and supplements to um, sound therapies to masking strategies. Um, and uh, um, I think that you, 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 you got to treat the patient the way that you would want to be treated and, um, you know, give them some hope, um, spread that compassion, and, and we can really help those patients. I, I agree, we don't have a cure, but we have lots of things that we can do to help our patients. Well, thank you very much for that, Professor Seidman. Hey, everybody, Kenna here. Just a couple of quick announcements before we end the podcast. As always, you can find more interviews like this one on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search for ENT Expert Opinion. Um, if you listen on iTunes and you're enjoying the interviews, please give us a rating and a review. It does help other people find us. Also, we are looking to expand the series. So if you have an idea for us, whether it's topics or interviewees, please let us know. And if you'd like to conduct an interview, go ahead and get in touch with us through Twitter, the Facebook page, or the website, entexpertopinion.com. Thank you so much for listening, and see you later.